This was recorded at 9pm Wednesday night, the 23rd of February. It was eight hours after we stopped recording at 5am the next day, so Thursday morning, the 24th of February, that Russia decided to finally invade the Ukraine. I just wanted to timestamp when we actually recorded this to allow for the appropriate context as you're listening. The podcast is with Jim Henry, who is a godfather to the field of investigative journalism for financial secrecy, offshore finance, capital flight, kleptocracy. He published Blood Bankers back in 2003, which exposed hundreds of corrupt kleptocratic infrastructure projects across the developing world, which we covered more fully in episode 49 of the podcast. I wanted to ask Jim about the efficacy of sanctions generally, and then specifically the sanctions being thrown against Russia in this moment that is happening with the Ukraine. So in the podcast, you will hear Jim speak about Russia's current economic issues, Putin's domestic problems, a consideration of sanctions, and then as well, general closing thoughts where we dread the surreal prospect of what has since become the reality, a potential war in Europe. And so with no further ado, here is Jim Henry. Well, Mr. Henry, Jim, welcome back to the podcast, mate. Good to be with you. So we were talking yesterday. I responded to your email newsletter. You were speaking a lot about the Citibank leak last week, but now obviously there's Credit a lot Swiss, of... actually. Oh, of course, Credit. sorry. And now there's a lot of chat about the capital flight out of Russia, the sanctions, how effective they are, and all of that. So I really wanted to hear what you thought about it. But to start us off, right now it's Wednesday the 22nd. What is the situation as it stands now? Well, I think we've gone from wondering whether Putin was going to invade to uh, deciding uh, how much of Ukraine he actually wants to occupy. And so uh, uh, the good news is that the world community seems so far to be standing up to him. And even China has expressed uh, doubts about, uh, you know, whether we should be messing around with the territorial integrity of uh, countries like the Ukraine for its own reasons. But uh, You know, Putin has definitely burned his bridges, I think, this time around. And from my standpoint, um, you know, the sanctions so far appear to be uh, commanding a lot of uh, unanimity within the EU and the United States and NATO. And uh, so that's a positive thing. Whether these sanctions that they've already implemented are really going to make much difference to Putin is is doubtful because I think he's already discounted them. and there's another whole level of uh, sanctions that we might be able to implement here that you know would maybe cause them to have second thoughts and more more importantly have an impact on uh, you know the Russian elites who are going to be in the background here you know because he has a domestic political problem in addition to his international problems um, I think that may actually be one of the reasons he did this because. Uh, uh, you know, over time, the Russian economy has not been performing very well. It's had, uh, you know, it's failed to diversify, uh, heavily dependent on commodities like energy. And, you know, so uh, in a way, I think you know, this is a guy who's been in power for quite a while. People are beginning to wonder, is this uh, all there is, is kind of animosity toward the West. He doesn't have a whole lot of allies that you want to take to a dinner party. Um, you know, people like Assad and Maduro and Venezuela. <laughs> you know, he's got uh, the Wagner Group working out all over Africa, you know, in countries like Mali and, you know, he's in Libya and he's... Uh, I don't know what his game plan is. He seems to be making it up as he goes along, but uh, in this case, case, I would argue that he's made a mistake um, the size of his life and this is really going to be hard to undo you mentioned he's got a big domestic problem what uh specifically are you talking about there well the Novalny opposition i mean he's thrown this fellow in jail he's not really uh dealt with the broader he's increasing over the last year we've seen it and i was involved with amnesty uh in this episode last uh january uh, 2021 where uh we were involved with trying to get uh, amnesty, uh, a uh, prisoner of conscience status, status. Amnesty had the embarrassing kind of reversal there where they declared him not to be a prisoner of conscience and then they went ahead and uh, gave it back to him. But uh, 
there's no question that uh, you know he, uh, both in uh, Russia and in you know his satellites like the Belarus, uh, the last year uh, have become you know uh, sort of a uh, seen a period of opposition growing. That's been an important uh, consideration here that I think we need to uh, take into account. Um, he spent a lot of time preparing for this, and so it's sort of something you, you would have expected uh, uh, to uh, have prepared more carefully for some of the sanctions. I mean, the, the uh, Russian reserves that have been accumulated are north of $600 billion. Um, but one of the mere, mere great uh, impacts that we've seen so far is, uh, is something that I don't think he's paying enough attention to, and that is uh, the tremendous dependence that Russia has on, uh, on uh, foreign capital markets. And, you know, Russian oligarchs in particular, the top 2,000 people in the country, uh, have more than, by now, probably um, more than $2 trillion offshore invested uh, in private uh, capital flight that has... Uh, What's that? That's larger than the entire domestic Russian economy, right? Yeah, the Russian economy is about $2 trillion, uh, you know, sort of depending on uh, whose estimates you use. But um, the important thing is to to see that Russia's access to foreign investment has dried up. I mean, the Moscow Stock Exchange this week has plummeted uh, 10%. It's, it's only about $250 billion stock market to begin with, so it's not one of the world beaters. But, um, you know, insofar as these moves by Russia uh, uh, make it harder for Russia to attract foreign capital and indeed make it more difficult for it to keep uh, money at home, uh, I think that's another vulnerability we haven't heard much about. Uh, I've been recently studying the case of Credit Suisse and uh, the OCCRP and other journalists have put together a tremendous uh, expose in the last week on the role of this big uh, sec number two largest uh, Swiss bank in uh, basically spending a, a, you know decades building a network of kleptocrats and uh, money laundering facilities for some of the worst dictators in the world. I would be very surprised if there were no Russians uh, as clients at that bank. So, mm. you know, that, that's uh, uh, kind of a, a illustrative of the sort of problem we're dealing with. There are an awful lot of Western institutions that have profited from these flight flows. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of timely that we came up with this, uh, this massive uh, report and uh, revelations from this whistleblower uh, uh, just uh, this weekend. Uh, I think what we're seeing here is really uh, it's kind of calling the question of how we got into this mess, and it highlights the role that uh, U.S. policy in the 1990s played, in, in which we basically, you know, gave into a, a model of uh, of kleptocracy, in which basically the Russian oligarchs took command of uh, uh, a great deal of the state enterprise uh, that Russia had accumulated. And Putin was kind of a, a reaction to all that. You know, Russia went through effectively a Great Depression in the 1990s. Um, rather than have a Marshall Plan for, for Russia, uh, both the Bush administration and the uh, Clinton administration uh, decided against giving any kind of aid to Russia and let them sort of find uh, financial relief for themselves. And so that drove them to a policy of doing things like massive privatizations, uh, the so-called loans for shares program, basically ended up enriching uh, a comparative handful of Russian oligarchs. Uh, and, you know, when uh, U.S. officials like Larry Summers, Assistant Secretary of Treasury in 1996 in Davos, was confronted by Jeffrey Sachs with this. Uh, you know, Sachs said to Summers, you know, uh, all these folks that you're enlisting in these loans for shares programs uh, are crooks, they're criminals. Uh, and Summers' response was, do you have any proof? <laughs> so, uh, we had a conversation with Richard Clark, who was a 
senior national security uh, advisor uh, in the U.S. government uh, throughout this period. And he said, oh, it was a tremendous victory for U.S. foreign policy that we got all this money to come out of Russia. <laughs> like, there was something we should celebrate. Well, um, I think that's absolutely uh, upside down. I mean, what it did was essentially to undermine Russian democracy. Uh, it uh, uh, empowered oligarchs who were willing to have someone like Putin that they could cut deals with. Uh, and then the money flowed abroad where it's ended up doing things like uh, uh, financing uh, Donald Trump in his campaigns. It was a tremendous amount of foreign Soviet Union money that came out of places like uh, Kazakhstan and Russian oligarchs. So, you know, in the long run, uh, this policy of encouraging kleptocracy in Russia, or at least permitting it, turning a blind eye to it, I think undermined Russian democracy and it created the demand for Putin. Um, and we're dealing with the consequences of that. Talk about the uh, sanctions as specifically as you can, what they've already been, and then what the sort of threat might be uh, further down. Well, so far the sanctions that have been uh, agreed to by the EU and the United States uh, uh, and the UK uh, focus on kind of three basic measures. One is there are some energy projects, uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline project, which is already paid for and built, but has yet to be licensed, uh, is, uh, you know, produces a, uh, would be, uh, Russia provides about 40% of uh, Europe's gas right now, and this would be adding to it. So it's a pipeline that Russia had been looking forward to selling uh, to uh, more gas to Germany. And I think, it, you know, Ukraine was going to uh, see some of the, the gas demand that had been channeled to it and drained away by Russia. Uh, that's been uh, tabled now. And it's not going to be opening uh, anytime soon. Uh, you know, but that's a relatively, in the scheme of things, a relatively small hit, and I'm sure Putin was anticipating that. Um, secondly, they've sanctioned some more uh, public officials and some banks, two big uh, Russian banks. The DEB is one of the best-known Russian banks that's been sanctioned, so they're going to have a hard time uh, having access to Western capital markets. They have put an uh, uh, embargo on Russian sovereign debt being traded on Western capital markets. Uh, it's not clear whether that's just applying to new issues or to, uh, you know, to all uh, the secondary markets. Um, and uh, they have also been uh, talking about the, the further sanctions, but not implementing them, that they might implement if uh, Russia goes, you know, full tanto, as the UK defense minister said today. Uh, tanto is not uh, a reference to the 1950s TV uh, network you know, station. In, in, in Spanish, it means fool. And so... Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are looking at these sanctions that have been implemented so far as stage one, as kind mm. of a response to his sending troops into these breakaway republics in the eastern uh, Ukraine. But if he goes beyond that and sends troops over the border into the outside of the republics, um, you know, there they're talking about sanctions like uh, cutting Russia off from the SWIFT uh, bank clearing networks, uh, which really have a dramatic effect on international trade with Russia. Mm. Uh, and then I would, I, I, I've been thinking about this notion that the $2 trillion of uh, Russian capital flight wealth that's sitting offshore, you know, it may be time for uh, that to be, you know, sort of, either, either we could go either way. We could sort of welcome more of it, but we don't know how much more there is in Russia to be taken out. Stock market this week fell by 11% on uh, the day that Putin announced these, uh, this move in, uh, into the Ukraine uh, in Moscow. You know, the stock market is only about a $250 billion exchange, so it's not huge. But um, you know, that uh, is indicative of, uh, of, in foreign, of investors taking their money 
to the sidelines, and in some cases, any Russian <laughs> investors might be thinking actively about uh, moving more funds offshore, given uh, the way this may play out. But uh, you know, the, the the EU collectively is much larger. Uh, economy, maybe 10 times the size of Russia. So it's, uh, you know, sort of, uh, it's been an attractive place for Russians to invest. Mm -hmm. But we might well decide to go after some of this Russian flight capital. Uh, it's been very easy to be a wealthy oligarch in Russia to have become essentially a citizen of nowhere for tax purposes. So you can have the best of all worlds. You have a great relationship with um, the dictator back home, and you know you've, you've got your uh, Russian enterprises that you've acquired, uh, you know, often uh, through not necessarily through your own industry, but through clever chicanery since the 1990s. And then you're allowed to have golden passports to um, travel around Europe to have a you know um, Cyprus and Malta were the most notorious for offering these to Russians, but. You know, together yeah, there's cases EU. of people buying diplomatic status and stuff. Diplomatic status, I've seen that a lot in, in the case of other countries, but it's also uh, been a factor here. And so they end up, you know, buying sports teams in Monaco and you know, uh, enjoying life on uh, they call London Moscow on the Thames. Uh, the the oligarchs have had free reign. Uh, the the Tory party uh, had this strange relationship with this guy uh, who financed Brexit named Aaron Banks, who could never quite account for you know, whether his money was Russian. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, there's, there's major Russian investors who come to the United States and park money in real estate and, and other kinds of assets here. So it's been a little bit too easy on this uh, oligarchy, uh, this uh, GARC class, to have the you know, the best of both worlds, uh, dictatorship and free markets. And they kind of rely on the fact that we have laws uh, that, uh, and institutions and independent courts that actually protect investors. So sh should they continue to enjoy that tax-free? Um, many of these folks don't pay taxes anywhere. So you're suggesting that this would be uh, a sort of more extreme level of sanction, but isn't the problem at the heart of all of Russia's capital flight that it's unlegislatable, it's unregulatable, it, it, it exists outside of whatever you could potentially sanction, you know, how would you actually end up curtailing that? Um, well, I think, you know, you go at it the other way around. Uh, in the UK, they have laws about suspicious uh, uh, un, uh, assets that have no known origins. Uh, and so it's enough already to say, okay, there's a hell of a lot of capital here, we just don't know where it came from. Uh, please explain. And until you explain, you know, we're going to freeze it. Uh, we're going to freeze the bank account. So we really don't have to necessarily identify. We can have some pretty good idea that it's coming out of Russia. I think that it would be possible to, uh, to narrow this down so we're not, uh, you know, hitting a lot of folks from other countries. But, um, you know, that's... Uh, that's kind of an investigative question, and you know, it's no question that if we opened up uh, the sanctions to a lot more uh, people of Russian citizenship and made it harder for them to travel, um, you know, and identified some of the folks, there's a good list to begin with, with the people who have the golden passports uh, in places like Cyprus, that we could make it, it harder for them to play this double game. And I guess the, the, the ask would be, you know, look, uh, you want to enjoy Western democratic institutions and freedom and uh, the rule of law, uh, go back to Russia and fix it, and, you know, make it happen. I mean, you have influence. Um, uh, short of that, we could say, I think, um, you know, that we're going to take a much closer look at where that, uh, those funds have come from and uh, do some more investigations. So the idea is, is that you hurt the oligarchs that would then compound on this domestic pressure that Putin might already be feeling, and that could be a way to then incentivize his behavior. Yes, and I think that there's some, you know, some interesting uh, 
divisions to be made, distinctions to be made. There are people who would be willing to be quite active in their opposition to Putin and uh, should be welcomed, uh, you know, wherever they invest. And there are folks who are really known uh, cronies and are very close to the regime. Uh, and in that category, uh, you know, we, we have uh, uh, quite a few candidates who are yet to be sanctioned and yet to be on the list. Um, and we have institutions like Credit Suisse that, and Deutsche Bank that are kind of notorious havens for Russian money. Um, you know, I think it's time to ask them to, uh, to take uh, a closer look at the transactions from that region. Where does Russia's lousy economic situation fit into all of this? So they are sort of comparable to what Spain, I believe, in terms of GDP. You said the stock market's worth $250 billion. Um, hmm. How much of the motivating factor for what he's doing now is explicable by a just dying economy and failing demographics and a rather bleak picture for the future of Russia? Well, there's no question that since he's been empowered there, he has not focused on developing an economic strategy for the country. I think I mean, China is kind of a good contrast. We've seen lots of companies investing in China and uh, wanting access just because it's a huge market, but also because it has a different attitude towards technology and toward uh, uh, receptivity of, of Western uh, science and, and, and uh, uh, modern technology. So Russia, it's fair to say, doesn't have, uh, you know, sort of heavily dependent to this day on commodities and, uh, you know, gold, platinum, you know, uh, oil and gas. Just oil and uh, gas, right? Yeah. Basically, oil and gas is, is the major one, but, uh, you know, in terms of exports. And I think that, in, you know, the, the Russian per capita income, about $25,000 a year, it sort of, you know, hasn't been growing very much. Uh, it's, it shows that. And uh, it's, it's remarkable to me that, you know, if you went back to the 1980s, the one area that Russia had some uh, you know, claim to was in basic science and, uh, you know, sort of outstanding technology, partly because of the 1990s, uh, it basically de-industrialized. Um, so uh, if Putin had pursued, uh, pursued a strategy that was focusing on attracting investment, uh, on uh, attracting technology, and uh, making the, the economy more competitive, uh, and making it more equal uh, in terms of opportunities, emphasizing making, for example, the universities really first, first world kind of quality, um, I think you would have had a much more democratic outcome here in a long time. It's not, not as if it wouldn't have had problems, but Russia per se uh, has always had a lot of human capital and sort of provided itself on education and uh, culture. Um, you know, that's going to suffer under this current strategy, which is very antagonistic. I mean, what artists are going to want to visit Moscow and perform or Leningrad? I mean, 145 million people. It's huge. Yeah, and it's aging. Uh, population is, um, you know, sort of... Uh, they got some of the worst demographics in Europe. Yeah, and I think they've suffered greatly under the COVID thing for, you know, the United States is no one to brag, but I think uh, Russia's had a very, and probably the official body counts are much higher than the actual, the ones they've shown, but hmm. uh, that's not a success story for Russian medicine. And... Uh, so in, in short, what you mean, Sputnik wasn't a, a miracle of science? <laughs> well, Sputnik maybe, but no, I think you know they were producing the Sputnik vaccine. You're talking about yeah, um, yeah. that has apparently failed in you know several you know, trials. Although I'm I'm in favor, all in favor of vaccines. I just want to make that clear. So, but even even the Russian version. No, I think <laughs> the issue here is there is an asymmetry in this relationship they have with the with the West in basic finance and uh, they receive very little uh, foreign investment at this time and they're very uh, dependent they're an actual actually to the point of where they're a very large creditor uh, 
to the EU and the US effectively after you take into account their foreign debts and their uh, reserves and all of this flight capital sitting offshore. They're basically net lenders to the rest of us. So what does the world do uh, when it doesn't like a creditor? Um, you know, it basically uh, defaults. Um, so if you really wanted to get serious in pressuring the Russian elite as opposed to uh, Putin in particular, we would broaden these sanctions to a much wider audience of oligarchs who are enjoying the privilege of uh, having it, uh, uh, the secrecy and the anonymity and the, and the kind of uh, legal protections afforded mm. by places like Switzerland. Mm. Is, I mean, that would be great precedence, right? It, I thought from conversations we've had in the past and obviously blood bankers, I mean, kind of at the no. core of the whole problem of capital flight and kleptocracy and offshore financial secrecy is the inability to do anything about it. Um, it would be a surprise to me if all of a sudden we could do something about it simply as a, you know, I don't know what would you Oh, call I don't it? think that this is a, a, a this is a blunt to hurt Russia. Yeah, but this is a, this is a blunt instrument and uh, you know, in general we have a problem with this outline of the blood bankers about the fact that the developing countries, far from being net recipients of capital from the West, are net creditors of the, of the OECD and uh, wealthy countries. Uh, and, uh, you know, kleptocrats find it far too easy to exploit secrecy and uh, private banking uh, to hide their stolen assets mm. offshore. And this is, that's the general case of this. You know, how do you address that problem once it's happened? Well. You know, you work on both sides. One, I've argued, is that Russia would, you know, should, should definitely try to do more to attract foreign capital. This is almost the exact opposite of what you would do uh, to attract foreign capital. But the other side of it is that if, if it's here, uh, you know, make it, uh, you know, at least tax it, make it harder, make it pay for some of the, the operations that Putin is, is having. And... Uh, and make it pay p part of the bill for this, because right now a lot of that is tax-free. Here's um, something that is being discussed quite a lot now. Um, this is all happening. You know, there's, I think, quite a lot of criticism of particularly Joe Biden, but also sort of EU leaders as well, that simple sanctions aren't necessarily effective at curtailing behavior. So how effective are sanctions at curtailing bad behavior? especially when it seems the motivation in this particular case with Russia and Ukraine, might, they might be willing to take the short-term loss because they consider whatever the culture unification of Ukraine is, is as an ultimate long-term gain. How effective are sanctions basically? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do the business case for sanctions here, I would cite the case of South Africa as a case in which uh, South African apartheid is a success story. Uh, in the mid 80s, uh, mainly bank sanctions were the most effective there. South Africa had a hard time doing trade finance. Uh, and uh, I think that it helped to make the South African white elite at that point conscious of the fact that they, if they are ever going to uh, survive and make the country uh, uh, grow again, uh, they were going to have to get back on uh, in touch with human rights and uh, get rid of apartheid, and that led to radical transformation in a system that many people thought was impossible to change at that point. I was there several times and saw it, and there was just a, a mood of, you know, we can do nothing. There's no uh, uh, pressure points that South Africa hasn't thought of. Well, they hadn't anticipated that the biggest banks in the world had basically said no to apartheid lending. So, that's an example in the, in the plus side. There are many examples where sanctions have been imperfectly uh, implemented and uh, there have been you know, leaks um, uh, with regimes. And Saddam Hussein is a great example of that. But you know, we can go on. I, 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 I share the sort of um, concern that unless we have a unified front against Putin, like we had in South Africa, unless we have a uh, raise the ante and make this uh, financial sanctions uh, and in South Africa's case that could be uh, that was that consisted of cutting off access to loans in, in 
the case of Russia, they're not borrowing heavily abroad, so that's, you know, you're, you're left to uh, this area of capital flight. Um, but, you know, in principle, I mean, the sanctions that they've already implemented will take time to work. They will have, uh, you know, if they go to the next level, it'll, it'll take uh, a whack out of, uh, out of Russia's GDP growth, no question about that. But it may take, uh, you know, several years to actually have a full effect. Uh, I don't see why the business case, I mean, if, if Putin obviously didn't have to produce a touch. A, a business case for this uh, before any uh, kind of democratic uh, council. He basically called the shots. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine that this pays for itself uh, to Russia. I mean, you know, taking those republics, uh, the cost to Russia's reputation, Putin's reputation, you know, it's going to be hard to get anyone to believe and trust uh, in uh, Russia as a place to uh, do business with. So, you know, what are the economic payoffs for the uh, Russian invasion? Uh, I, said, I mean, it's going to be, uh, I think, a big loser. And it's going to get worse if, if the sanctions hold together. What Putin is counting on is that uh, there are many European countries where Russia has had extraordinary influence uh, and has people on the ground who are basically, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily they're on the take, but, well, why not? Let's say they're on the take. Uh, there are senior politicians, at least, who have had, uh, are known to have had long-standing relationships in Germany, in, uh, in Austria, and uh, uh, certainly in, uh, the United Kingdom. In, the U in the UK uh, and, and France. And uh, so I think what he's counting on here, uh, you know, has been, is that there will be division in the ranks, and this will divide the EU. And we, we, if we, especially if we go to the next level of sanctions, which is, you know, the SWIFT network uh, issue might be one aspect of that. Mm. Uh, there will be, uh, you know, sort of more opposition. But uh, you know, if we don't see that, and if we have the EU staying, standing together and uh, uh, NATO standing together on this issue. Um, I mean, I think we may have uh, a better prospect. I don't know exactly how this will uh, walk back, but you can imagine, uh, you know, the U.S. has said it's open to diplomacy and will remain so, um, just not this week. <laughs> um, it feels like an all-in move from Russia, and there is an element of it being hysterical. It feels a little bit unhinged. There is no sort of rational explanation that us non-Russians, non-Ukrainians can really understand. Uh, I was speaking to my mate about it who was Russian and she was all on board, right? Because she's deeply nationalistic and identifies with this notion that the Ukraine is Russia. But it just feels like on an international geopolitical stage, this is an unhinged move. And that kind of adds an element of to it because there's a there's a very real reality that a couple thousand kilometers from me there might be an invasion um so yeah, i mean the russian ambassador to sweden was saying you know was warning sweden against joining nato i mean sweden is one of the countries in europe that's you know traditionally not been a member of nato and yeah they finland play both hands. is also they play both hands but uh i'm told by my finnish uh, colleagues that uh sentiment in terms of joining NATO is rising. And uh, indeed, uh, before this happened, you know, the sentiment in the Ukraine toward joining NATO was about 50-50. Now it's more like 60-40. Um, I'm interested in Russian popular opinion about this. Uh, we haven't seen people in the streets, you know, uh, you know, sort of saluting and, you know, giving... Uh, Putin a, a great, uh, you know, sort of applause, round of applause for this. Uh, I think it's rather quiet. But there are, it's hard to get information on polls in, in Russia that, uh, you know, so we just don't, we, we don't know. It would be, in fact, a great thing to do is to try to call up, you know, 25 Russians at random and say, how do you feel about this? Um, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you'd say, 
let's go invade another country. Oh, okay, Ukraine? <laughs> you know, that Ukraine is a country with an economy that's performing even less well uh, than Russia. I mean, taking it on and being responsible for it. You know, so maybe Putin is counting on producing lots of refugees that will drive the Europeans crazy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I just I, I agree with you that it's there's something pathological about this. And uh, as you heard Putin speak to the other day, you know, you were saying, well, this man needs a therapist. I mean, he really. Yes, it is true. Thank you very much for the contributions of the Soviet Union to defeating the Nazis. If we haven't said that all uh, enough, we would love to take you out to lunch and, and, <laughs> and, and, and uh, say it again. A pat on the uh, back. There was this little episode in 1939 uh, where Stalin signed a pact with Hitler which kind of enabled him to invade, uh, you know, Western Europe. But, you know, let's put that aside and we'll set, stipulate that many millions of Russians died in World War II and we are grateful for that. And seriously, uh, I mean, the West does not do enough to celebrate, the, you know, to pay tribute to the sacrifices that Russia made, which essentially I would say most objective historians say that by 1942, the German uh, invasion had been curtailed and Hitler had been defeated. So, yes, thank you. Um, and I think that's a sore spot. Uh, this, is, this issue of the history of the Ukraine, I mean, uh, you know, if you go back to the 7th century, you know, the Norwegians had occupied, uh, you know, Kiev. I mean, when, when there were just plantains and uh, empty forests in Moscow, uh, Kiev had a very dynamic civilization. It was thanks to, thanks to my Viking ancestors. I mean, they were the ones who for four centuries had built. So, you know, Putin, we want you out. The Norwegians are coming. Uh, this, this notion that we can rewrite history and start... Uh, yeah, he you said know, Ukraine was made by uh, Lenin. Yeah, it was like this this notion. That this is the weirdest thing I've 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 heard. I've sort of uh, you know bark the it's called barking, uh, barking mad. I think is the British phrase. Uh, the idea that you know. So I think that at the end of the day, we have to get him back. Um, he's clearly calling a lot of the shots, and he may not be well. Mm. Well, look, we said we'd keep it a short snapshot. So I just want to finish with this one. You lived through the Cold War. You know, Russia is the old enemy, right? To um, many people uh, in the United States. What do you make of all the war rhetoric and how likely is an invasion on non-Russian separatist territory, a legitimate invasion of a European country and potentially a European war? I mean, I don't think I can sit here, you know, in the United States and, and, and really comment on the, uh, the objectively the realities on the ground there very clearly. It seems to me from a slight distance that uh, we have an enormous uh, risk of accidents of, uh, of uh, Russia, even if they have no intention of invading the rest of the Ukraine. Uh, you know, there was a big cyber attack today on banks in Ukraine, Putin is giving us no reason uh, not to believe that he is bound on invading and taking out the rest of the country. You know, yeah, all, all signs the deployments that he's made, all signs are pointed in that direction. I can't imagine him saying, oh, sorry, just an exercise, you know, back to, uh, back to judo. You know, I, I just don't see it happening. You know, it's not... Uh, in the cards. I, I, I do think what we, you know, Russia and the United States have a tortured history. We've actually had many periods of, of cooperation and good relations with the Russian people. And most Americans, uh, you know, when, when they are aware of all the relationships that the United States has had with Russia, uh, are, are delighted to go back to that. Um, there's no fundamental animosity at all. The problem is this guy and his inner circle. You know, it's, it's kind of, I mean, he, he likes to claim that the Ukrainians are Nazis, but if you read uh, 
best biographies of Adolf Hitler, uh, you know, during the period of uh, the Sudetenland crisis in Czechoslovakia and uh, the, uh, the ramp up of troops on the Czech border during that period, 1938, um, you know, and the, and the kind of the weak Western response to it. Um, you know, there's n you're just struck by the degree to which one guy can basically uh, cause all of this damage to international relations if he just is able to to uh, to have the power to do so domestically, and that's what we have with, the, with Putin right now. This is a a good example if we needed another one of the perils of dictatorship, uh, and uh, that's why capital flight is soared out of Russia and will continue to do so until there's a change in that basic story. I'm sorry to say that, but uh, we we would like to see Russia back. I, you know, in the 1990s, I went to, uh, I, I, the first trip to Russia was in 1985, before the fall of the wall, and I went to Leningrad at that point. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. It was The Russian people are phenomenal and warm and so you could see, but it also struck me that the country was basically, you know, surprisingly underdeveloped. Um, and in 1996, I went back and uh, I we wrote a piece for the New Republic about how Russia was was being mistreated by the West, and that basically we were dealing with all these kleptocrats, and um, you know, we were. Uh, uh, basically enabling Boris Yeltsin uh, at that point, who, you know, the guy who was found at 4 a.m. in the streets of, outside the White House in his underwear, drunk as a skunk one night. Yeah, what a famous This guy was, was empowered, you know? Yeah. And um, Marshall Poehler and I wrote this piece about, after the 1986, after the 1998 Russian crash, about how we basically screwed up uh, our relations with uh, with, with the Russian people and, and failed to have a democratic transition because we uh, enabled these kleptocrats. Well, Putin was the consequence of that. So there's no question that the United States and its partners in NATO have a lot of responsibility for what's happening right now. It goes way back. It doesn't excuse it. Of course uh, not. But, no, but, uh, nobody, not, nobody's trying to excuse it. I think that there is a camp within the United States that is kind of, uh, I would call them Putin apologists here, saying, you know, why aren't we, uh, you know, it's all our fault. Uh, I think it's hard to explain Putin's behavior in terms of just a response to NATO, you know, or just feeling threatened by NATO. I mean, you know, he's, he's he can look at Estonia and Poland and, and feel threatened, but, you know, they're not going anywhere. Uh, no, it's it's been, it's basically a land grab, uh, and it has to stop. All right. Um, on the subject of Russia's lousy economy, sanctions or capital flight, is there anything left that you want to say on this moment? Uh, this is a really artificial crisis. And it would be, you know, the world has so many serious problems to get on with. I mean, Putin has a big contribution to make. Russia certainly does to solving the climate crisis. Uh, we can't wait you know, to do that. We still have a pandemic raging. We hope that we're through with that, but that's a problem for the public health services. Is it really a non-issue, Jim? I mean, there's potentially going to be a country invaded. That seems like a giant. No, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's not an issue. I'm saying it's an artificial issue. It's a, it's, it's a serious, yeah. It's completely completely avoidable, completely gratuitous, Mm. voluntary, Poking yourself in the upside. eye with a sharp stick. This is a low upside for everybody. Upside, I, I yeah. said this, you know, the last two weeks ago, I said, I cannot believe at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of people are forecasting invasion. Rationally speaking, it just makes no sense for Russia. It's no, no, no sense for us. It's lose-lose. Uh, and so we have so much to do together. You know, we're not enemies. Uh, there, there makes no sense to be enemies. So uh, I hope you know, I hope that the that NATO fast track Ukraine into into the organization. Well, and just uh, you know, force Putin's uh, hand. Yeah, at this point, it looks like that. You know, might be. Uh, yeah, and bring them into the but, EU as well. 
It's such a good country, isn't it? The Ukraine is one of the. You know, I, would, I have a different potential. proposal. I I have a different proposal. I would like to bring Russia into the into NATO, um, and uh, see if they could. Uh, you know, uh, one of the conditions would, of course, be de uh, democratic systems. Yeah, but I don't and think the they rule want of law. to be. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, but it would get rid of this kind of artificial nonsense and uh, no excuse. I mean, let's yeah. bring them in and, and try to at least have a serious um, affiliation so that the, the paranoia, which is evident here, uh, is uh, eliminated. Mm. All right, mate. Well, uh, correction, it's Wednesday, the 23rd of February, 9 p.m. European time. It's important to timestamp this because... Obviously, it could all change overnight tomorrow, and right. it seems hot to boil at the moment. So, um, shit. Yeah, it's, good. Uh, good luck was, with it. Good luck yeah. with being in Sweden. I was saying <laughs> to my front. mate uh, today at the gym, who um, he served three tours in Afghanistan with Swedish military, and we were talking about this. Um, this, yeah, we were talking about Russia, Ukraine, and I made the comment that it's so surreal that there could legitimately be a country invading another country for pretty much no reason. Because for me, in my generation, as an Australian as well, you hear about, you read a lot about wars, you watch war documentaries, you know what happens. But in my lifetime, it's never happened. Because you, there's all this rhetoric of that we're beyond that. This thing can't happen anymore for X, Y, and Z reasons. But it's really weird that it could happen. And so, well, yeah. I, you know, I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I was I'm old enough to have remembered that as a, a reality. In 1961, uh, I was 11 years old, and we were all terrified. It was October uh, 1961, and Khrushchev and Kennedy were going back and forth. And at a certain point, the, the U.S. military advised. Uh, uh, Kennedy to launch a bombing raid on these uh, missile sites that they'd identified in Cuba. Uh, what they did not know, and which McNamara later uh, uh, sort of admitted, was that they already had acquired uh, nuclear weapons in Cuba. That there were several short-term and medium-term nuclear weapons in Cuba. So if they had launched that airstrike, uh, we would have had, uh, you know, Miami at least go up in smoke. So that shows you know how perilous these things are because these folks think they know what they're doing, and they make mistakes. So that's what worries me the most here is that someone will make a mistake, and this will accelerate beyond our wildest dreams. But I agree with you that it's unprecedented and it is surreal. That is the right word for it, and it's eminently avoidable. If I were able to talk to Putin, I'd. Just you talk him off the ledge, Jim? I would try to talk him off the ledge. Jim. I, on, try to talk <laughs> the ledge. I mean, come on, Vlad, for God's sake. No, but he's not a nice guy. He's uh, no, I've but he's a handiwork, no, and he's, and he's he's not a he's not a guy. He's got a very very high body count, and I mean, but he's completely self interested, right? He obviously loves Russia, but at the end of the day, he loves Vlad most. I well, I'm I'm looking forward to the the. Uh, you know, the Putin biography. Um, oh, yeah, that'd be get, yeah, That would be uh, terrific. But uh, I hope we all all survive to read it. Yeah. You know the story of uh, Petrov, this um, engineer in the Soviet bureaucracy? I forget the year, but it was at the height of the Cold War. Do, yes. do you know? Yes. Yeah. There, there, were, there was... Is he the fellow that refused to launch... Uh, yeah, he 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 double checked, triple checked, and then quadruple checked. Right, right. That there he was trust a, the, a system for, error. For whatever reason, yeah. he no, thought for whatever that maybe reason. And that, and that the Soviet computers could be wrong. Mm -hmm. And that changed the <laughs> yeah, course and of history. So, and that, you know, that's an incredibly yeah. lucky outcome. And yeah, like no, you've already all... seen, there's these false flag attacks in the Ukraine, yeah. there's cyber attacks. All it takes is one little flare yeah. up for things to just get so out of hand. And, um, um, that's you know, that that's crazy, yeah. right? I mean, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was it the catalyst for World War One? You know, right. 
it, it's it's no, unpredictable. It's, it, the the series of these events are that all, can be, um, you know, these are the events that are basically governing our lives while we make plans. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. While we record podcasts. Go back to Right. All okay, right, on to the next uh, hurdle. Now that we've uh, analyzed that to death. Yes. Don't <laughs> uh, stay tuned. I'm 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 you know uh, I'm pessimistic by nature, but I. I <laughs> you know, um, I mean, the, the, in this situation, the opportunities, the gains from trade, as they say in economics, from a deal here, uh, you know, are enormous in, in theory. I mean, everybody could have, I mean, should have had it by now. Uh, uh, we could have reminded Putin that it takes five years for anybody to join NATO and, you know, uh, Ukraine is not on the high, on the top of the list. Yeah, know. but he knows all this. Like, of course he knows all this. An this is just an excuse. Yeah, That's why I'm it's thinking an excuse. that this is just, it's an excuse. just an excuse. I thought initially it was um, just a very, very strong way to negotiate some sort of uh, better yeah. better situation for his gas into Europe. Simple as that, but uh, you know, it's clearly yeah. something bigger than that. Anyway, Jim, um, yeah. that, was, uh, that was great. Thanks. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did too. Thank you. Thanks all right, very man. much, Ron. All right, all right. So obviously, since this was recorded, the situation has changed quite dramatically. I'm recording this at 1 p.m. on Thursday, the 24th, Central European time. So Russia has invaded Ukraine. Jens Stoltenberg, the uh, head of NATO, has responded. Everyone is sort of unanimously against what Putin has done. Peter Hitchens just came out and called him raving stark mad. There is an unhinged element to all of this. It's uh, very bizarre. But obviously, as things continue to un- unfold, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm not going to make an appeal necessarily like I usually would do in other episodes to review and rate the podcast or anything like that. Um, but I hope you got something out of this. I'm going to try and get as many previous guests on the podcast as possible who have a unique understanding or perspective of either Russia or Ukraine on the podcast to have them say something, what their two cents is of all of this. So for more in this speciality of looking into the world of kleptocracy, offshore finance, etc., you can look at episode 49 with uh, Jim Henry, where we talk for about three hours about blood bankers. Bradley Hope, episode 51, who was the co-author of one of the biggest uh, financial scandals uh, in modern history, the 1MDB and Joe Lowe. Episode 50, Pandora Papers, explained by Nick Shaxon, who alongside Jim is one of the godfathers of this field. And then an upcoming episode with Oliver Bolo, who wrote Moneyland. And uh, then more and more as well. As well. So this type of expertise and is uh, super relevant at the moment to the moment with Russia, Ukraine, given that most of the value, the production created in Russia is actually very, very, very unequally distributed to the top 100 uh, oligarchs and kleptocrats whose money exists outside of Russia. And basically the whole point from Jim here that it could be used as a very strong stick of sanctions. That's all. Cheers.